You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature Podcast. You know, Father, in listening to your lectures, one of the topics that comes up is the Syrian desert. We spent time talking about Genesis 1 through 11, but you know, the Syrian desert is so common and appears in the prophets so much. It's like it's its own theme. It's its own almost character in Scripture. Can you help explain the way for us to understand the Syrian desert better and how it functions in Scripture? Both the entire scriptural storyline and the individual stories take place in Scripture in the larger area surrounding the Syrian wilderness between Egypt and the two great rivers, the Euphrates and Tigris. Even Job and Esther in Susa, Daniel, Queen of Sheba, all this is, as I shall show you, within the Syrian desert, actually the Syro-Arabian wilderness, that is already delineated in Genesis chapter 2. Until the book of Joshua, the geographical setting of the Pentateuch stories is the larger area of the Syrian wilderness between Ur, where Abraham originates, and Egypt. Remember, Abraham and Terah are from Ur, which is the opposite of the Negev, the southern wilderness of Judah, Palestine, which is near the wilderness of Egypt. So, Everything is between the extreme southeast, which is Ur, and remember that at that time Ur was at the shore of the sea of the Persian Gulf. And on the other hand, Egypt, all that one has to do is to look at a map. It's very simple. And even after their residing in Palestine, the patriarchs continue to have connection with their home in Haran in Upper Mesopotamia, and no less with their shepherd relatives. It's very interesting. And in Genesis chapter 14, we have even a connection with five kings from the area of Babylon. Add to this that the burial place of the patriarchs is technically in Hittite land, in Hittite earth. We have the story of Ephron, who gave a piece of his land to Abraham. Then Moses, very strikingly, a shepherd of flock, technically presented as such as Abel was, shepherd of flock, is raised by an Egyptian princess and marries the daughter of a Midianite shepherd, Jethro, And to top all that, Moses never sets foot in the earth of the promise. He's a total outsider. And after the settling in the earth of the promise, immediately with the rise of kingship, you have already dealings with the people of the area Aram and Syria and Hamat and Assyria and Babylon. So just by listening to the story without any theological preconceptions, The background, the geographical background, is the Syro-Arabian wilderness. And notice, 
that in chapter 10, and I shall come back to that, the nations that are mentioned are all residents of that Syro-Arabian wilderness, plus the Eastern Mediterranean to include the Greek, the Shaphetites. Only later in the New Testament, we have a push to include the Western Mediterranean because of Rome, but not in the Old Testament. So when we speak of the nations, it is important that we are dealing with the nations of that area, China, Japan, Australia, the Americans, Scandinavia, and Northern Europe are not included. <laughs> it's a fact. And I like to give this example. In order for the North Americans to be included directly in conjunction with Jesus Christ, Joseph Smith had to come up with the Book of Mormon where he says Jesus came personally after his ascension and appeared in North America, and he had 12 apostles. They had to repeat the story because they felt that they had to be connected directly with Jesus Christ. And that's the problem of historicizing. <laughs> this reality of the Syrian desert pervades Genesis 1 through 11. You will notice that in all my podcasts, I go back to Genesis 1 through 11 because I have shown in my audio and in my book that it is not only a mini scripture, but the total scripture. So in Genesis 1 through 11, the scriptural word is already delineated very transparently in Genesis 2. First of all, you have a garden, which is an oasis. It's not a British-style garden, man-made. An oasis is not man-made. That's why in Genesis 2, the author said, God planted the garden, not Adam. But it's very funny that the water that comes out of this garden spreads into four rivers. Two of them are mentioned by name, the Euphrates and the Tigris. But then the two others are Hebrew nouns, meaning gushing and flowing, but that are linked way south with the land of the Havilah, which is southern Arabia, and Cush, which is southern Egypt. So already the author is presenting you with his total world, which is the Syrian wilderness as will be made very clear in Genesis chapter 10. Now, to go back to the oasis to the garden, if we read it, and we have to read it as being the oasis in the Syrian desert, the center of that Syrian desert is Tadmor. Now we call it Palmyra, but Palmyra does not exist in the Bible. Even the Septuagint transliterated Tadmor into Thadmor which is found in 2 Chronicles 8.4 as a city built by Solomon. So it's very interesting that the scriptural kingdom of the scriptural Solomon includes Tadmor together with Jerusalem. If you read these verses 3.4.5 of 2 Chronicles 8, you will see that Solomon built also Tadmor after the mention of the fact that he built Jerusalem. And that, I think, is intentional because later Jerusalem falls, but one never hears that Tadmor fell.
Tadmor means the indomitable, that cannot be conquered. And when we hear about God making the desert bloom with majestic trees, this is obviously a hyperbole. In other words, God is capable to give so much life in the desert that those trees that we humans can see only on the top of the mountains can receive life in the desert. And we have very interestingly, but I can go in detail on that in Ezekiel chapter 33. Now, when we move outside Genesis 1 to 3, we have Cain that is asked to wander, wander, as a shepherd in the wilderness wanders. Obviously, we talked about that, but he ends up by building a city, which is not good. Go to the flood, out of nowhere, and I detail this in both my audio and my book, we have the unexpected mention of the mountains of Ararat, why suddenly Ararat? which we meet again only three more times in the Bible, referring to Armenia. Well, the answer should be simple, because there we have the sources of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, in Genesis 10, we have all the nations, let me repeat that, that are mainly around the Syro-Arabian wilderness, plus, as I said, the eastern Mediterranean in order to include the Greeks. Remember that my thesis is that the Old Testament was written anti-Alexander of Macedon, and he forced the Japhetites, the Gentiles, the Isles, to come and find the blessing under the tent of Japheth. Then Genesis 11, we have again two elements that are very striking. Suddenly we have the word bikaa, which is a spot in the desert, which is an oasis that does not appear again in the Pentateuch until Deuteronomy. So it's singular in Genesis 1. But the fact that it is linked with Babel and the land of Shinar, Shinar, it's very clear that it is connected with the Bik'ah of Ezekiel, where the Lord first appears to Ezekiel, and at the end, he gives life to the dry bones in that same Bikah. It is impressive. Chapter 37, the first part of 37. But we get excited about the resurrection of Christ and the bones and so on. And we dismiss geography. And that is not acceptable in the Bible. Like when you hear that Jesus is on the mountain or he is on the seashore, you have to take it very seriously. Why should he be there? So Genesis 1 the encounter between God the Majestic and the false majesty of the human beings takes place again against that background. Then the second part of Genesis 1, we have Shem's family, and we talked about that. Their names reflect shepherdism. So technically speaking, the entire area, the so-called scriptural Canaan, is not Palestine. It's the entire Syrian wilderness. And we have, again, in Genesis 23, a text very, very powerful, where the tomb, which is very sacred for the people of the Middle East, of Sarah plus Abraham and all their children, was in a piece of land owned by Ephron the Hittite. 
very interestingly. So they are buried in Hittite land, which is way up to the west of Armenia. And the area of the wilderness is technically shared by many tribes. That's why we have many nations there. And the tribes in the Bible are Shabit. A tribe is a Shabit, which means a staff. So already you hear, if you hear the original Hebrew, that these tribes, the nation is shepherds. But shepherds live together in the wilderness. They don't fight. They just move around until they find an oasis. In other words, you rest around the oasis and you listen to the patriarch as a tribe, a shepherd in the pasture land under the rule of the staff of God. And this comes back to us in that exquisite chapter 34 of Ezekiel, where God is the shepherd of the flock in the pasture. And the pasture, as I mentioned the last time in Ezekiel 47:48, is open land with a metaphoric city in the middle, which is the presence of the Lord himself. That would be what I would say about the Syrian desert. Obviously, to test this, my hearer has to read the Bible. That's all I can offer. Thank you very much, Father, for such a helpful description of what's going on around this and how important this geography is. I had a couple of questions. One was, in Second Isaiah, we see this image, as you mentioned, of the desert, specifically the Syrian desert, the desert between Babylonia and the land as blooming. And I've heard this described other places as kind of the anti-Exodus, where Exodus is a wet place that becomes dry, and then you have the Syrian desert as this dry place that becomes wet. How does that relate to the Syrian desert and going through the Syrian desert to freedom relate to going through the Red Sea to freedom? The sea is very tricky. It is water and even the river that gives life. You can live, not live without water. But then it is threatening because it's lots of waters, the waves and so on and so forth. Whereas in the desert... The water comes in small spots, a little bit. You can never have a flood in the desert in that sense. It has to be alongside the rivers and so on. So it's obviously a parabolic play on the two facets that the people imagine that you need water to have a city. Look at the history and geography of our United States before the trains and the airplanes. You could not have had a city like Denver. All the major cities are next to the water. New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, and so on and so forth. It's so obvious. So you are around the water, and that's why the Mediterranean was very important for the Romans. They took over the entire Mediterranean to control the area. And scripture is proposing, as I said, shepherdism against urbanism. So that's the play that is always there. And once you are aware, then you can use it the way you just use this metaphor. So what appears to be life-giving, which is water, is not. The real water 
is the water of life that comes from God. You have it in John 6, but Jesus goes around in the boat and so on, and the people meet him, they want to eat. You see the play on the water and the bread, and then Peter tells him, you have the words of life. And that's, I think, the challenge. Either one accepts, you put your trust in the biblical story, although it's a parable. I mean, the hare and the tortoise is also a parable. Or you continue looking around and showing me that, no, it is not so. Look now, unless we have pipes and electricity and so on, we can't live. Well, <laughs> that's the other choice. But you have to take it also with its ills. Listening to you talk just about water specifically, it's hard not to think about your revised intro to the Old Testament and the formation of the city and the patriarch and so forth and the king. It's clear, putting that puzzle together, that by making the point that water is not life-giving, Scripture is emasculating the king. It's the anti-kingly thesis all over again. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, let's go back to Genesis. Now you triggered something in me, that your life comes from the tree of life, but that tree is watered by the water of the garden, which God planned. It's amazing. So... Already, your safety lies in abiding by the will of God. Do not eat from that tree, eat from this tree. We have to attune ourselves to listen to the story. But unfortunately, Greco-Roman theology through Alexandria controls the entire Christianity, even Judaism. You know, we begin with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and eternity, and the soul, and the connection. We're not listening to Scripture. Notice that shepherds do not have cities and statues and so on and so forth. As I mentioned elsewhere, God is present through the voice of the living patriarch. So the Syrian desert, I'm going back to shepherding because it's connected. As I mentioned again in my audio and my book, the three elements that are the three crimson threads of the Bible is that God is interested in the nations, not only specifically in Israel. And this is reflected in that the whole story is across a wide region, I mean, huge region of those times. And it's mainly around shepherdism, the patriarchs and so on and so forth, and Moses and David was a shepherd. So I'm asking my hearers to, <laughs> one more time, listen, listen, buy tapes of scriptures even in the bad translation of any language, including English. But still, my thesis that someone who knows by heart or as much by heart the Bible in English or in Scandinavian or in French, in my estimation, understands it much better than someone who knows very well Hebrew but does not know the entire Bible <laughs> because the reality is in the story. Now, if someone knows both, that would be the best deal. And you notice I mentioned earlier Bika and Shinar and Shebet and so on. These are only in the original. You can't render them in the translations. We've been talking a lot about the Syrian desert and how important it is in the Old Testament. And I'm thinking about the New Testament, the times where we do run across the Syrian desert, for example, in the Gospels when Jesus goes to meet John the Baptist or then is tempted afterwards, or then when Paul goes to Arabia, as he mentions in Galatians. How does the Syrian desert function in the New Testament then? Well, you yourself mentioned three examples. 
that this is an invitation by Jesus who came from the city and he went outside to call other people and then Paul who was more a city person than Jesus Christ also strikes us by speaking about Arabia and notice he mentions this in chapter 1 but Arabia reappears again in chapter 4 as the place reflective of the Jerusalem above very important but I would like to mention in this regard again this really unique 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 book of Matthew he alone mentions in chapter 4 that Jesus went out in the region of Syria and that brings to mind the famous Syria and Cilicia of Paul so it's by hearing the story that you are reminding the people who are closing the whole thing around themselves that there are other people around them and as I mentioned earlier in my presentation in the New Testament you have a push because the Syrian desert is around the Sea of Galilee and we all know that the Lake of Galilee is not a sea and it's a stand-in for the Mediterranean Sea as I and many other scholars point out. So the geography is very important to understand the story because it's in a setting. We live in a country where the different Aborigines, the Indians that live in the north and the south and so on, have to some extent a different mentality due to the geography. Take a Scandinavian and an Italian, that's the way it is. But then this geography is localized, so one has to know about it, to see it functionally, and only then will one see the oasis and the life, because desert is a bad translation. It's a steppy. Wilderness would be much better. Desert, usually someone's things of Sahara and so on, but that's not the idea. It's the borderline between the high vegetation and the very low vegetation. I once drove with the Metropolitan of Homs, who took me to Palmyra, and you can see it. Around Homs, you have high trees, and then you go right in the open and slowly on the vegetation becomes tiny, 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 tiny. And then you see the city of Palmyra. That would be my recommendation to people to do. You know, Father Paul, this is such an important discussion. And in the spirit of what you are teaching us about the Near East and scripture, I often challenge people I work with that the reason so many empires have failed to successfully conquer Afghanistan is because they come into a country that is mountainous with rough terrain and they imagine it to be in the image of their own country and then they can't govern. And I think it's so important and I find personal satisfaction because of my own heritage in the Middle East mm. that in order to understand scripture, people have to understand the setting in a very literal way. They have to have respect for the historical context in a very geographic way and how it played with empire in the ancient world. Yeah, that's why until now, Mongolia was able to mess with the rest of the world. But up till now, almost 2017, no one seems to mess with Mongolia. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. Because that is another wilderness at the heart of which you have a huge desert wilderness and so on. And they are still on their horses and not sheep, but I mean, they have sheep, but it's a different civilization. 
So for me, Mongolia is, if you like, a biblical land. <laughs> I'm going next year in Mongolia. Let's leave next it there. Mongolia. <laughs> well, I'm too old. So perhaps you and Richard <laughs> will do that trip for me. Sounds good. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Father. Thank you very and much, Father, today. Ask, we'll ask Bassam about Mongolia. He took a trip by car from London, a rally and so on. He has it on his blog uh, to Mongolia. And then they flew from there after having sold their cars for charity and so on. It was very good. They were not allowed to have a car of more than one liter. Oh, my. Yeah. And they had to drive. There were three people with their stuff going through all these countries after Turkey, Uzbekistan, and so on and so forth, until they got to Mongolia. That would be an interesting thing to invite Bassam once on this podcast. <laughs> it would be. You know, and I, I was going to say, we'll find his blog post and we'll make sure to add it to the show notes. That's right. But don't ask him about scripture. He'll refer you to me. <laughs> <laughs> and we're fine with that, Father Paul. <laughs> Take care. We'll okay. see you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Thank Father. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.